Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man walah. Amma ba'd. The topic of jihad in the current climate is a very, very, very difficult one. It is a topic that no matter what you say or how you say it or who you say it to, you will bring a lot of attention, you will bring a lot of criticism, and you're not going to satisfy everybody. So today's topic, my goal is not to please anyone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to discuss the reality of some of the quote-unquote jihadist movements of the 20th century, i.e. the last hundred years or so. And this topic is especially relevant and especially emotionally charged in light of all of the transgressions that are taking place in the Muslim world. We see so many governments, we see so many powers attacking Muslim lands. We see so much oppression and dhulm, injustice. And someone seems to stand up and fight against that injustice. And therefore it is natural that our sympathies with, are sometimes with those who are fighting against oppression. Our sympathies are sometimes with those who are fighting against injustice. But the fact of the matter is that it is possible, it is possible to fall into injustice even as you fight against injustice. And the wise person is the one who can point out the problems, the inconsistencies of both methodologies while remaining firm to the truth. In our religion, just because you're a Muslim doesn't mean everything you do becomes legitimate and right. In our religion, just because you say La ilaha illallah, it doesn't justify everything that you're doing. And if someone points out some mistakes of Muslims, this does not mean that they're siding with those who are opposing Allah and His Messenger. This does not mean that they are siding with unjust regimes, with tyrannical governments, with foreign policies that have suffocated Muslim lands. Not at all. Rather, we are pointing out that if you want to fight against oppression, you want to fight against injustice, then the best way to do it is the most effective and the most Islamically legitimate. Both things have to be taken into account. What is Islamically allowed and what is not allowed. And I also want to make a very important disclaimer here that this talk has nothing to do with our brothers and sisters who are fighting against oppression directly. This talk is not aimed to, let's say, Syria and our brothers in Syria that are fighting against the regime. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who, and my criticisms in today's talk, are going to be about people who are targeting those who have nothing to do with injustice. They're targeting those who are, we would call them in modern language, civilians or non-combatants. They were, the, the talk here is for those Muslims who are sympathetic to organizations, sympathetic to people, sympathetic to trends that are indiscriminately killing everybody. Obviously, whether you're Muslim or not, if, you're, if your land is attacked, your country is attacked, your home is attacked, you have the right to defend. And our brothers and sisters in Syria, for example, when the regime is doing what it is doing, where I'm not talking about them in particular. No, I'm talking generically, especially for those of us living in the West who might, some of us might be sympathetic to 
trends to movements that we assume are battling these evils but sometimes they fall into evils sometimes they fall into greater evils and I'm going to try to be as generic as possible and I want the maxim I want us to learn and to memorize is those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it very simple those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it do you think this is the first time that the Ummah is facing injustices in the world? Do you think that this is the first time that there's been a crisis? Do you think this is the first time that the banner of jihad has been raised? Do you think this is the first time oppression is being challenged? Of course not. So why don't we look back and see at other movements 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 30 years ago that also attempted to challenge injustice. And we can now analyze their mistakes and make sure that we don't fall into the same mistakes as we battle against injustice. Brothers and sisters, to be explicit and crystal clear, we all know that the root cause of quote-unquote Islamic terrorism, the root cause of Islamic terrorism is the legitimate political grievances that these people have. We're all angry at the Palestinian crisis. All of us are bleeding for what is happening in Palestine. We're infumed, we're infuriated at how so many countries are treating our Muslim brothers and sisters. So the question is not whether the West is doing an injustice in Palestine. The question is not whether, you know, the Israeli conflict is this and that, or the question is not whether the, the, the foreign policy of Afghanistan, the drone attacks, we are all opposed to the false invasion of Iraq. We're all opposed to the indiscriminate killing uh, of, of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. The question is, what do you do here in Norway? What do I do in America? What is our response to that violence, to that zulm, to that injustice? Should we follow the path of those clerics and those people who preach, oh, we have to wage jihad against everybody in the world? All of Norway, because they have, I don't know, five peacekeeping troops or 20 somewhere in the world, all of Norway becomes guilty. In America, we have such people that they say, oh, because of the drone attacks in, in, in Afghanistan, we can bomb New York City. And they say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is their mentality. I am criticizing this mentality. I want to be explicit here. Let nobody ask a ridiculous question at the end. I am not talking about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan attacking those who are attacking them. I'm not talking about our brothers and sisters in Palestine, in Kashmir, fighting against the troops that are killing them. Of course, every human being in the world, when his family, when his children are attacked, when they're deprived of basic rights, of course they're going to stand up and fight back. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about me and you right here in Oslo, in America, in New York, in, in Houston where I'm born and raised. Do we just go and start killing people? The Boston bombers. This is what I'm talking about. The bombers in Boston, they were Muslim. They claim to be Muslim. We don't deny their Islam because of this deed. Was that deed legitimate or not? That is the question I'm talking about. I am not talking once again about Afghans defending their land against troops that have invaded. That's a separate issue, separate topic, nothing to do with my topic today. So I want to be very clear here. The topic here is the indiscriminate killing of non-combatants, of civilians, of peoples in lands that by and large are not aware and are not involved of what is happening in foreign places. And I began this talk by talking about some of the uh, characteristics of the first group in Islam that I would say exhibited extremist tendencies. And this group is the famous group of the Kharijites. This group is the famous group of the Kharijites. Now, 
For those of you who have never heard of this group, the Kharijites were the first splinter group in Islam. And they broke away from the Muslim community at the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib, the fourth caliph. When Ali and Muawiyah were having a war based on politics, not based on religion, and they disagreed based on politics, to save the Ummah and not have another war, both Ali and Muawiyah agreed to a truce, to a ceasefire. The both of them are companions, the both of them understood this is not wise. So they agreed to a truce. They said, let's stop fighting, let's negotiate the way forward. These group that were later called Kharijites said that this is wrong. The fact that you've agreed to a ceasefire is wrong. Because, oh Ali, if you're on the truth, you have to kill the very last end of the other troop and finish him all off. And if you're not upon the truth, well then, you shouldn't have been fighting and the other group should win over you. In other words, they saw the world as black and white. Remember this point. They saw the world as black and white. You're either with us or against us fully. There's no in-between. You're either fully upon the truth or else you're completely wrong and there's no middle ground. And they broke away. And this group known as the Kharijites, our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu he predicted of them. And he gave us some characteristics about them. Now, these characteristics, listen to me carefully again. These characteristics by and large are still found in many of the quote-unquote radical jihadist groups to, in our times. Groups such as Al-Qaeda, groups such as the ISIS, we find these characteristics in them. Listen to me and listen to your Prophet Muhammad with an open mind. And then you see for yourself, do these characteristics exist in these groups or not? What did our Prophet say about the Kharijites? These hadith are in uh, many of the books of, of, of hadith. The first one I'm going to quote you is the hadith of Abu Dawood. That our Prophet said, There will be differences in my ummah. And a group of people, They speak this talk. They have good speech. But their actions are terrible will appear. So notice the first characteristic. What they're calling to, what they're saying is beautiful. What they're doing is downright evil. This is what our Prophet said. They know how to talk. Their call is great. You cannot disagree with it. The actions they're doing are terrible. And they shall recite the Quran, but they will not, it will not leave their throats. Meaning, they seem to be pious, but they're not acting upon the Quran. They shall depart from this religion like an arrow goes through its prey. Like an, when you shoot an arrow, it goes through a deer. Like it goes through the deer, that's how they're going to leave this religion. They are calling to the book of Allah, but they have nothing to do with the book of Allah. So this is the first character, the first hadith, excuse me. They're calling to the book of Allah, but they have nothing to do with the uh, book of Allah. And in the famous hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, a man came to the Prophet ﷺ with a huge thick beard, a wide forehead, and shaved hair. And the Prophet ﷺ was in the battle of Hunayn, he was giving the booty and the spoils of war to various people. This man came up and said, Ya Muhammad, astaghfirullah, this is how he's addressing the Prophet. He's a Muslim, so supposedly he's addressing Ya Muhammad. Ittaqillaha wa a'dil fil qisma. 
Fear Allah and be just in distributing this money. Meaning I want more than what you gave me. Fear Allah and be just in distributing this money. Our Prophet ﷺ said, Wayhak, woe to you. Who else will fear Allah and be just if I am not fearing Allah and being just? If I will not fear Allah and be just, who else on this earth is going to fear Allah and be just? And some of the Sahaba became so angry and incensed, they wanted to execute him. And the Prophet said, no, let him be. Don't, don't, don't execute him. But from this man's mentality will come. From this man's mentality will come a group of people. You shall consider your worship and your prayer and your recitation of the Quran to be nothing compared to theirs. I.e., outwardly they're overzealous and overpious. But they shall leave this religion like an arrow leaves its prey. In another hadith, also in Sahih Muslim, our Prophet ﷺ said, there will come during the end of times. So now this, he's talking about groups in our times, towards the end of times. A group of people, now listen to this now, memorize this description. Hudatha'ul asnan, sufaha'ul ahlam, yaquluna min khayri qawlil bariyya. Three characteristics. Number one, hudatha'ul asnan, young men. Young, they're not old, they're not wise, they're not experienced, they're a bunch of kids. <laughs> they have the most grandiose visions, they're dreaming the biggest dreams. <laughs> they are speaking the best speech that you've ever heard of any man, but they will leave Islam like an arrow leaves its prey. In all of these hadith. These groups are being described as leaving Islam and they're being described as speaking good, painting a beautiful picture, but doing deeds of evil. And this is the problem that many people, when they listen to these groups, the speech is great. It's incendiary, it's moving, it's powerful, championing the rights of the oppressed. But then you see the damage that they've done, the innocent lives that they've killed, the blood that they have shed. And it is difficult to connect that image with this image. And this is what our Prophet Muhammad is saying. That you shall consider their prayers trivial compared to your prayers trivial compared to theirs. So these people are reading the Quran. They're saying the most beautiful speech. They're calling to the book of Allah. But there's something wrong with them. What is wrong with them? They're causing bloodshed, violence, their actions, their deeds are not supportive of the Qur'an. Therefore, historically speaking, historically speaking, the Kharijites of old were the most eager to accuse other Muslims of nifaq, of hypocrisy, of kufr. They were the most eager to shed the blood of other Muslims. They were the most eager to fight other Muslims. My dear brothers and sisters, the Kharijites of today have the exact same characteristics. The first group to accuse any other Muslim, oh, because you don't support us, you're a hypocrite, you're a munafiq, you're working with the kuffar against us. The fastest people to pronounce judgments on others is this group. They're the fastest people to target Muslims before the enemies that are actually killing the Muslims. And when one of the Kharijites wanted to debate with Ali ibn Abi Talib and he had some flowery speech, what did Ali say to this Kharijite? Again, a very profound statement. Ali ibn Abi Talib said, this is kalimatu haqqin urida biha batil. What he is saying is true, but what he wants to do with his saying is evil. 
What he's preaching is true, but his actions that are leading to it are evil. And if we look at the modern militant movements within Islam, we learn that never has a group come out performing acts of terrorism and succeeded in the long term to bring about peace or remove oppression. I reiterate, listen to me carefully, and if you don't believe me, go read history and study yourself. Never, ever has a group come from within our tradition performing acts of terrorism, killing innocent people, wanton violence, and then they have brought about everlasting peace and good from this movement. And in today's talk, I want to just illustrate two or three of these recent movements. So we talked about the early Kharijites, and in one hadith, our Prophet ﷺ said that this group shall continue to resurface from time to time. They'll continue to resurface until the Day of Judgment. So I want to talk about some of the groups in our recent times, in the last 30 years or so. And the last 30 years, I have been alive throughout all of these incidents, even though I was a child when some of these happened. This is during my lifetime. We're not talking about 1800s, 1700s. We're talking about 1970s onwards. Very recent history. Let's look at some of these movements and then you decide for yourself which modern movements are the most symbolic, if you like, or the most representative of these movements that we will mention. The first movement and the one that I have actually spoken a lot about in a lot of detail and wallahi one of the most scary and dangerous movements uh, in our recent history is the movement of Juhayman ibn Saif al-Utaybi from Mecca. Well, he's from Riyadh and then he uh, moved to Medina and then he did what he did in Mecca. Many of you might not be aware, one of the saddest incidents in our recent Islamic history was the hijacking of the Kaaba itself. It's so bizarre when I first say this story, people think I'm making it up. If you don't know this, ask your mother and father. Everybody knows who was alive in 1979. Everybody who was an adult in 1979s and a Muslim knows of this story. The Kaaba itself was hijacked. It was held hostage. The Kaaba, not by a group of pagans, not by a group of idol worshippers, not by a group of kuffar, by a group of ultra-fundamentalist fanatics that were so quote-unquote righteous and pious that many of the senior scholars alive at the time did not know what to make of it. Why? Because they thought these people were good people. They thought these people were righteous people. And this is why it's so scary that there is a fine line between fanaticism and between righteousness. There's a fine line between fanaticism and righteousness. And that line is sometimes difficult to distinguish even for people of great knowledge and great stature. Who is this man, Juhayman? To be very brief, and I've spoken about this in a lot more uh, detail and I've also presented academic papers about this individual and his thought. Juhayman lived an average life. He joined the National Guard as a young man and he became more and more uh, religious. Uh, as, uh, as he became older, he eventually uh, quit the National Guard and He's living at a time in the 60s and 70s when Saudi Arabia is for the first time experiencing money, materialism. And he sees in front of him all of the wealth pouring in. And he sees the changes in lifestyles. He sees people now living the life, building big mansions. 
He sees non-Muslims coming in, engineers, doctors, and their lifestyles also now being imported. And there was a time in Arabia when alcohol could be uh, available. It wasn't as strict as it is now that you could purchase alcohol. Uh, music and television is now being introduced for the first time. Now, this is a very Bedouin, very closed culture. Perhaps it still is in many ways. It's a very closed culture. And now in the 70s, for the first time, television, or uh, television was the 60s, excuse me, but for the first time, there are women without hijab on television. There is music coming on television. And this is enraging him. It's incensed him. He quits his job, and he moves to the holy city of Medina, and he begins a grass move, grassroots movement, which was called the Movement of Accountability, the Movement of Accountability. And the movement was popular amongst the masses and it would go preaching and teaching door to door, masjid to masjid and it would also try to enforce law on people. So a number of times when he would come across a music store in Medina, there were music stores in Medina, may I shock you and say there are still music stores in Medina, but there were music stores in Medina and uh, he would find these stores and he would break the glass and take the stuff and destroy it and then move on. Now, technically, whatever you believe about music, it's not your job as an average Muslim to go break into a store and destroy the property. It's not your job. But he took it on himself that this is my job now to go and destroy uh, music and other things of this nature as well. And he started criticizing the Saudi government, the royal family, for what he perceived to be the excesses of the government, for the lifestyle of the, the princes and the playboys and whatnot, and what is happening to our society, our religion is becoming bad and whatnot. And uh, eventually, in 1976, uh, Juhayman decided to start a smaller private secret movement. And this movement, he called it the Ikhwan, nothing to do with the Ikhwan of Egypt. This is nothing like that. This is just a smaller cult type of, of movement. And he moved to a small village outside of Medina, and he began training in military expeditions, in, 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 in warfare, uh, in, in training people how to use firearms. And this was outside the city of Medina. And obviously, the city of Medina has the very famous university that I'm very, very proud and humbled to be a graduate of, the Islamic University of Medina. I studied there for 10 years, a bachelor's and a master's. And some of my own teachers, some of my own teachers were alive and contemporaneous to this movement of Juhayman. And I heard many, many stories. Uh, for some reason, I always had an interest in this story. And so as long back as I can remember, I'm always asking my teachers about stories. So I, I know a lot of the internal stories that you're not going to find in the newspapers and whatnot uh, from this story. And some of my own teachers, uh, new people that were a part of Juhayman's movement. One of, uh, one of my teachers was a friend of Juhayman, actually was in his house a few days before the Meccan attack and he didn't know what Juhayman was going to do. In any case, Juhayman started preaching a new theology that was very top secret. What is that top secret? The theology was, we now have the Mahdi in our midst. His brother-in-law became the Mahdi. We have the Mahdi in our midst. And this Mahdi shall overtake the Haram, shall destroy the forces that are sent against him, and we shall establish peace on this earth. We shall eliminate the evil of the Saudi royal family, we shall eliminate the evil of Saudi Arabia, and there will be peace on earth. What is the means for this achievement? We need to go straight to the Kaaba and take control of the Kaaba. Why? Because there's a hadith in Abu Dawood. In fact, it's not just Abu Dawood, it's also in uh, Bukhari and others. Uh, that our Prophet ﷺ said that a man, the Mahdi, shall flee from the oppression and seek refuge in the Kaaba. 
and armies will be sent to destroy or to kill him. But Allah will cause the earth to swallow those armies up. Now this is the hadith. What did Juhayman do? He wanted to make a real life movie out of the hadith. He wanted to make a script out of the hadith. And he decided, why don't I play the actor of the Mahdi? Or my brother-in-law play the actor of the Mahdi. And Allah will then execute the script on my behalf. And this is not allowed in Islam. You don't execute the ahadith of the Prophet upon yourself as if he meant you. And in fact, many of the ahadith don't apply to him because the Mahdi shall flee, not take the Kaaba hostage. The Mahdi won't have an army. He had 600 people uh, armed, armed guards taking the Kaaba hostage. The Mahdi will not kill any innocent people. And Juhayman killed at least 100 people. So the point being that he thought he's implementing the hadith. So what did he do? On the 20th of, of November in 1979, which corresponds to the first of Muharram, 1400. So he wanted to be at the beginning of the Islamic New Year. Why? Another hadith. What is that hadith? At the beginning of every 100 years, Allah will send a, renew, a renewer, a mujaddid. So he thought, let me use the hadith of Abu Dawood and the hadith of the mujaddid. Let's put them all together on the first of Muharram, 1400 Hijrah. I will attack the Kaaba or take the Kaaba hostage. So what he did was, before Salat al-Fajr, he entered the Haram, and he entered the Haram with armed, sorry, with beers, the funeral pyre, the, the, the funeral processions of the coffins. But instead of dead people, those coffins actually had machine guns in them. And in those days, there was no checking at the Haram door. All of this checking in Saudi Arabia began after 1979. In those days, there were no armed guards in front of the Haram. Who could ever imagine somebody would attack the Haram? In those days, Saudi Arabia was a very different place. So, Juhayman enters with dozens of these funerals, fake funerals in different, in different areas, and his followers congregate. There was a basement in the Haram, and after Salat al-Fajr, Juhayman positions himself behind the Imam. As soon as the Imam finishes, it was actually Sheikh Subayr. Uh, Sheikh Subayr is still alive right now as we speak, very elderly man. It was Sheikh Subayr was leading Salat al-Fajr. As soon as the Sheikh finished Salat al-Fajr, Juhayman's man pulled out his gun and uh, took the microphone by force. And Juhayman began telling all of the people in the Haram that lo and behold, the day of judgment is close. The Al Saud is the worst government in the world. The Saudis are losing their religion and we have the Mahdi. So come forth and give your oath of allegiance to the Mahdi. And of course, the people are totally confused. Many of them don't understand Arabic, right? Most of them are Pakistani, Indonesian, Malay. They have no idea what's going on. But he locked the doors down. And shut off all the exits and thus began a long siege which I don't have time to get into. It's been documented in other places. For almost two weeks, for almost two weeks, the people were held hostage. The Kaaba itself was held hostage. Tawaf ceased to be performed. The five daily salawat were not said. And when the Saudi forces, who no doubt there's a lot to blame in terms of their military maneuvers, it's not my point here to point out which side did more of the mistakes. My point is to point out Juhayman's fanaticism. I'm not defending the ineptitude of the Saudi government and how it responded, that's a whole different issue. But I'm saying the fanaticism of Juhayman, that's what I'm concerned about in this lecture. The Saudis didn't know how to react, they sent a few troops in, and Juhayman's forces had snipers on, you know the minarets, the same minarets that you see all the way on the top. They shot down these snipers. Blood was shed in the Haram, the holiest place on earth. Blood was shed. And the Saudis did not know what to do, turned into a siege. Eventually, after two weeks and over 100 people dead, the Saudis just stormed into the Haram with tanks. You know the staircases you walk up? 
tanks went up. The doors you see, tanks pulled open those doors. Grenades were thrown. There was a shootout in the shadow of the Kaaba. It is estimated, nobody knows the truth, that around 500 to 600 people died in front of the Kaaba. And Juhayman and his followers were eventually caught. The Mahdi was shot in the, in the attack. Some rumor that Juhayman himself shot him. And Juhayman was captured alive and he was executed in front of the people in public after the trial and whatnot. And there is video, there is pictures. You can see Juhayman on YouTube. Google it or YouTube it, Juhayman, Makkah takeover 1979. You will see videos of Juhayman being captured. And wallahi, you see him. And I swear by Allah, I don't care what anybody says. You see the characteristics of the Khalijites right in his eyes. The fanaticism. This is a man he thinks he's going to bring about peace by holding the Kaaba hostage. This is a man he thinks he's going to change the corrupt ways of the Al Saud by doing even more corrupt things, killing people in the Kaaba. But you know what's scary? And wallahi, this is scary. And you know when I say this, some of the brothers, some of the mashayikh, they get irritated. Yasin, why do you talk about these things? You know why I talk about them? Because these are lessons to be learned. We see the same thing now. What is scary about Juhayman? Senior scholars were duped by Juhayman. Senior scholars believed Juhayman to be righteous. Senior scholars were hesitant. What do we do? We know this person. The, a, a person that I love dearly, Shaykh Ibn Baz ta'ala. This was his student. And when Juhayman was imprisoned before for, for, for uh, the, the music stuff and the television stuff, Sheikh bin Baz himself wrote letters of Shafa'a to get him out of jail. Oh, he's just an overzealous kid. It's all right. He's not that bad. He himself wrote letters to get him out. Obviously, Sheikh bin Baz did not approve of the Haram takeover. But what does that show you? It shows you that fanaticism exists in people that might otherwise appear to be righteous. Even to our scholars. Many of my teachers, when I spoke to them about Juhayman, I swear by Allah, some of them would begin to cry. Why? Because they remembered their close friends who were killed in that incident. They remembered people that were a part of Juhayman's movement. One of my teachers, he said, most of the people, listen to me carefully, most of the people who joined, joined Juhayman's movement were hufad of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Think about that. They were genuinely religious. They thought they're doing something good. I know another famous person that you also know him that he was a young student in Medina at the time. And believe it or not, there was one American in Juhayman's group. One American in Juhayman's group. And this American brother, he knew that other American. He knew that other American. And this American told him, my friend and teacher, why don't you join us as well? We're doing something big. He didn't tell him what. Why don't you join us? We're going to Mecca. Just, you know, we have a big plan. And my friend and teacher, he prayed istikhara and he said, I never felt as negative about anything in my life than I did that day. So I said, you guys go, I don't know what you're doing. And alhamdulillah, it turned out that that's what happened, right? The point being, righteous people, other famous scholars, I mean, Sheikh Badiuddin, whoever knows him, righteous scholars, his son was with Juhayman's movement. This is not being said to embarrass these great scholars. It's being said so that when we point out these groups are not people with horns coming out of their heads. They're not people with, with devil tails that you can recognize them. They are hufad of the book of Allah. They are righteous people, but they've lost sight of reality. They're so incensed and enraged at music and singing that they're willing to shed blood in the haram, thinking that that will bring about Allah's peace and religion. They have lost the plot completely. And frankly, brothers and sisters, we see the same fanaticism in the modern jihadist movements. 
There's a lot of dhulm going on. I too am an ang was angry and angry that there was alcohol available in that country, that there's so much fahisha. But what's the way forward? To take the haram hostage? To kill at least a hundred people at his hands in, in the haram by, by, their, by their sniper rifles? To hold the hujjaj hostage? Innocent hujjaj were kept in the haram. To be fair, eventually most of them or maybe all of them were released after a week. But still, for one week, for five days, you have innocent men, women and children in the haram for, who have nothing to do with anything, held hostage, terrified, not worry, wondering what's going to happen. What type of fanaticism leads to this? My dear brothers and sisters, what did Juhayman's incident accomplish in Saudi Arabia? Absolutely nothing. Quite the contrary, after the incident of Juhayman, religiosity itself became something that was a bit dangerous. People with beards were monitored. People who showed up for Fajr. This is in Arabia, not in Tunisia and Egypt, which already used to happen. In Arabia, for the first time, religious people were put under government control. Religious people were rounded up and sent to jail just because they were religious, out of a fear of religious people. And this caused a backlash that we are seeing to this day. And by the way, Osama bin Laden himself mentioned that one of the first signs of becoming more Islamic to him was the Juhayman incident. That he took inspiration from Juhayman and he, and he writes, and I have his writings, uh, I have his writings and his lectures. He writes that no doubt Juhayman, what he did was wrong, but still I sympathize with much of what he did. Now, wallahi, I have no sympathy for Juhayman. I have no sympathy, zero. You are going to kill people in front of the Kaaba. I don't care what your causes are. You are a fanatic. You are an overzealous lunatic, honestly. I don't mind, I don't care what anybody says. You have lost the plot. I don't have any sympathy for Juhayman. But who had sympathy for Juhayman? Osama bin Laden. And he has writing this in his, uh, a number of his speeches that he's given. He doesn't have memoirs. You will find this online. That Juhayman's incident was one of the first incidents that really sparked within him an interest in Islam and religiosity. Because obviously he grew up in a household that was not that religious. It was Juhayman's incident and then the Afghanistan war that made him more uh, religious. Now, Juhayman has written many booklets. No, sorry, seven booklets and pamphlets. Not many. And... Um, I read over all of them for a paper that I was delivering at a conference and it's very scary. Wallahi, I will tell you honestly, and I am somebody who has a master's in theology. I know my religion, inshallah, inshallah to a good degree. Wallahi, I was reading his documents with a fine tooth comb. I was waiting to jump on something that I could say, aha, this shows that he's a deviant. Aha, this shows he's a fanatic. I swear by Allah, I could barely find anything that gave me warning signals. It seemed to be very solid, very well argued, very passionate. And this terrified me. Why? Because I have the advantage of hindsight, looking back. And I'm going through his pamphlets with a fine tooth comb. And I don't find anything wrong. Imagine those people who were with him. And there were many of my teachers who knew him personally. They all said the same thing. That we really thought he was a righteous, pious individual. Maybe a little bit fanatic, but still righteous and pious. Some of his closest friends didn't know what he was going to do. But this is what he ended up doing. And... Juhayman, it's very interesting by the way, that he always used to say that you accuse us of being Khadijite, but we're not Khadijite. And he would say, just because you say we're Khadijite, no, that doesn't make us Khadijite. Which means what? Even in his lifetime, people were saying, you are Khadijite, you have these tendencies. And he had to defend himself. 
Now, the point being that Juhayma's movement is really a very, very interesting movement to study. And it came from within the, uh, generally the Salafi or the Najdi Da'wah tradition. Juhayman was definitely within the movement. Most of the people with him were students at the University of Medina, of his teachers, Sheikh bin Baz and others. And this shows us that fanaticism can occur no matter what your theology is. You have fanatics in every movement. Just because you belong to a movement doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. You have fanatics in every single movement. And Juhayman is a good example of that. Another good example that we uh, can benefit from is the, uh, perhaps the first real jihadist radical group. And this is before Juhayman, so let's go back 10 years. Beginning in the late 60s and uh, early 70s. And in the late 60s and early 70s, a group of people broke away from the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Now we're going to Egypt. That was, Juhayman was in Saudi Arabia in 1979. Let's go to Egypt in the late 60s, early 70s. And a person by the name of Muhammad Abdussalam Al-Faraj, he wrote a book called Al-Faridat Al-Ghaibah. And Al-Faridat Al-Ghaibah means the hidden or the neglected obligation. And the neglected obligation was that of jihad. And this treatise, this, this pamphlet, which is available online, is the first real jihadist tract. And according to him, jihad is an obligation that is number six on the five pillars of Islam. He says Islam has six pillars, not five. And the sixth one is jihad. The sixth pillar, that's why he calls it the hidden pillar. The, the missing pillar. The sixth pillar is the pillar of jihad. Now this movement or this book, it sparked an underground movement primarily amongst middle-class educated Egyptians. It didn't appeal to lower class, it did. It was middle-class educated Egyptians. They began reading this book, and of the people who kind of were sympathetic or read this book were people like Khalid al-Islambuli, who we'll come back to later, and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who to this day as we speak, he is the leader of Al-Qaeda. He is, as a young student, he's reading this book. This is the first literature he comes across. And also somebody by the name of Dr. Fadl, we'll get to Dr. Fadl uh, in a while. Now, this movement, and this movement is sometimes called Gama'at al-Jihad, or the Gama'at al-Islamiyya, they call themselves the group of Jihad, or the group that is Islamic. Uh, this movement, it had an audacious plan, a grandiose plan. What was that plan? They said that Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, he is the problem. Why? Because where do we even begin? Number one, he rules by other than the law of Allah. He rules by other than the Sharia, and then they quote the verse that the Kharijites of old also harped on. Whoever does not judge by the law of Allah, he is of the Kafirun. And the Kharijites were the first to extra emphasize this verse. As for the tafsir of this verse and the nuances beyond the scope of this class, but no doubt the Kharijite understanding is an extremist understanding. But they said, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, is not a Muslim. Why is he not a Muslim? They have a long list. Number one, he doesn't judge by the Sharia. Number two, he recognizes the state of Israel. Number three, he persecutes religious people. And the list goes on and on and on. So they become judge, jury, and executioner. They decide in their basements that he's not a Muslim. They decide he has to be executed. They decide they will execute him. Judge, jury, executioner in one. So Al-Gama' Al-Jihad, they, they began to plot and plan. And it just so happened that a senior member of the... Uh, of the National Guard. Now the National Guard is like the elite army of Egypt. The National Guard is like the, in America we have the Marines or something. I don't know what you guys have in Norway. It's the elite of the army. A senior member of the National Guard by the name of Khalid al-Islambuli. He 
embraced this version of Islam and he volunteered to help them in this plan because he has access to Anwar Sadat. He has access to the leaders because he's a part of the elite. And so what happened was they made a very audacious plan that on uh, 6th of October 1981, uh, 6th of October is a day of celebration in Egypt. To this day, it is a day of military uh, parades and victory. Why? Because uh, the war against Israel was successful in, was it 1967 or don't quote me, 71, I forgot. Uh, but the war against Israel was a success in, on the 6th of October. So the 6th of October is a national day for Egypt. It's a holiday. And the military has an annual parade. To this day, it's a national holiday and an annual parade. So they said on the 6th of October in 1981, in 1981, Khalid al decided to execute a plan where three, four, five people of the National Guard would attack Anwar Sadat in public and kill him. And they felt that as soon as they killed Anwar Sadat, the whole world would be in peace. They will get the Islamic State. When they cut off the head of Fir'aun, the rest of the society will automatically become Islamic. And the most audacious assassination in recent history takes place. The video footage is crystal clear. Again, YouTube it, find it, assassination of Anwar Sadat. You actually see Khalid al-Islambuli jumping out of his army tank and rushing up to the stadium. And there is, uh, there is doctor, there is Anwar Sadat and shooting him 21 times, point blank range, shooting him completely until he dies. Husni Mubarak, the current guy who's in jail and whatnot and his regime is back in power. But anyway, Husni Mubarak himself was wounded. And he had to go to the hospital. He got a bullet into his hand and whatnot. He was sitting next to Anwar Sadat. Henry Kissinger, the foreign minister of America, was also there and wounded. Many senior dignitaries were there. But Anwar Sadat was assassinated. What happened? After Anwar Sadat is assassinated, they get Husni Mubarak. And was Husni Mubarak any better? Wallahi, anybody who studies the two, no matter what we want to say about Sadat, he was better than Mubarak. And now what's happening is even worse than Mubarak. So the point being that this military or this type of coup that took place, this assassination that took place, what did it bring about? Now, some of the people involved in this assassination fled. Amongst them is Umar Abdurrahman. Who is Umar Abdurrahman? He is a blind sheikh from Al-Azhar. He has a PhD from Al-Azhar. And he fled to America in 1987, excuse me. He fled to America. And in America, he also begins preaching jihad against America. What type of jihad? Are you going to defend Afghanistan from the troops? No. Jihad against the World Trade Center. By putting in an, uh, a truck full of explosives and blowing up the people working in the World Trade Center. Some of you are too young to remember this, but in 1993, this was the first World Trade Center attack. The second one was Bin Laden doing it in 9-11. In 1993, I was in college at the time. I was a, a first year, second year university. I remember this vividly, that the news spread all across our country and, and it's like, what is going on? And Muslim radicals have attempted to blow up uh, the World Trade Center. And who is in, behind it? Umar Abdurrahman. And he is serving a jail sentence to this day. What did that accomplish? Why are you going to kill the stockbrokers of the World Trade Center? What have they done? And the World Trade Center has so many, at least 10% of the people in that building are Muslim. What have they done to Afghanistan, to Israel, to Palestine? What is their fault? But no, that was his vision. Jihad against America. Sounds great. The reality was what? What did they accomplish in this? And the 1993 uh, bombing takes place, and that is also now history. In 1997, Al-Gama'a al does another attack. And this one in all likelihood was 
instigated by Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, it does appear to be the case. In 1997, another attack took place. And this was done in the, uh, the temple of the ancient uh, pharaohs in Luxor. And it is called the Luxor Massacre. And the attack was instigated once again by Al-Gama' al-Islamiyya. And uh, it appears that Bin Laden funded this attack and Zawahiri was one of their, their masterminds. Um, and this was the first time that the name of Bin Laden started appearing in the Western media. The name of Bin Laden started appearing in 1997 when this Luxor massacre takes place. What is this Luxor massacre? What happens? Well, once again, you have fanaticism. Al-Gama' al-Islamiyya. What are they saying? They are saying, look at our Egyptian society. It's all going bad and evil. Why? Because of foreigners. What are they doing? They're sending us their tourists. There's women in bikinis. There's, there's sharab and alcohol available. There's all of this nightclub and dancing. How can we have this in our own land? What should we do? Let's go kill them. Simple solution. So what did they do? On the morning of 17th November, 1997, they attacked a group of tourists in the Luxor palace and palaces. Uh, the, sorry, the, it's a whole... Uh, it's a whole pyramid type structure, I don't know what they'll call it, the ancient Egyptians had a, a structure there and it's uh, uh, considered to be one of the main tourist attractions and it was not heavily guarded, they chose it because it was not heavily guarded and they attacked a group of tourists, over 62 tourists, the bulk of whom were Japanese there happened to be Japanese tourists, the bulk of whom were Japanese. Over 62 tourists were massacred, gunned down, knifed to death. Some of them, five, ten-year-old children. And this massacre, this massacre, after it took place, of course the Egyptian military caught them and then shot them and, and, and whatnot, uh, the reaction to this massacre was astounding. Rather than, and they, what were they hoping to accomplish? They wanted to show the world that they have some power, that they can challenge Husni Mubarak, that they will establish an Islamic state. What happened? The Egyptian people turned against Al-Gama' al-Islamiyya like never before. And the public, for the first and only time in history, rallied in support of Husni Mubarak. Whatever you do to these fanatics, go ahead, we allow you. The public sympathized with Mubarak against the massacre, against the, uh, the fanatics. And what happened? Eventually, all of the big names, Bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, all of them had to say, oh no, 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 this isn't us. Somebody else did it. But they're blaming everybody else. Definitely one of them is the one responsible. But all of them had to dissociate and say, no, none of us is responsible for this massacre. What did it accomplish again? Shedding innocent blood is not going to bring izzah and glory on this earth. And the final point that we'll mention, the final story, is probably one of the most interesting stories. And that is the story of one of the main leaders of Al-Gama' al-Islamiyya by the name of Sayyid Imam al-Sharif and he's called Dr. Fadl. He's called Dr. Fadl. He's, no, he's popularly known as Dr. Fadl. And Dr. Fadl was a classmate, a colleague of Ayman al-Zawahiri in medical school in the 1960s. You know Ayman al-Zawahiri is a medical doctor. Dr. Fadl was a colleague of his. And in the 1980s, both him and Ayman al-Zawahiri migrated to Afghanistan. And they got involved with jihad and the Bin Laden movement over there. And he remained in Afghanistan throughout the entire Soviet occupation. He participated 
in expelling the Soviets, and eventually Dr. Fadl becomes the scholar of the Al-Qaeda movement in the 80s. This is before 9-11. Dr. Fadl becomes the main intellectual spokesperson. Why? Because he had a better education, he has more scholarly, he had better writing skills than Dr. Zawahiri, Ayman al-Zawahiri. So he wrote a very famous book. It is, it is still available. It is called the Encyclopedia of Jihad. And this book is considered to be the main encyclopedia of the texts of jihad, the ahadith of jihad, the Quranic verses of jihad, the tafsir of jihad. It is in multiple volumes. This is Dr. Fadl, not Dr. Zawadi, Dr. Fadl. And eventually when the jihad in Afghanistan finished, he then moved to Yemen. He started practicing uh, medicine and he's just living his regular life. Now what happens? 9-11 takes place. And Dr. Fadl has now completely breaks away from the jihadist movement. And two years ago, he wrote a book that is called Tarshid al-Jihad, which really means reclaiming jihad and guiding it in the right manner. Jihad has lost the plot, he's saying, or the jihadist movements, I should say. The jihadist movements have strayed. This book is meant to bring them back to the right path. Now, why is this book so important? Well, because you can accuse me and other people of not talking the talk and walking the walk. Who are you, O Yasir Khadi, to criticize these jihadist movements? What have you done? You are sitting in your air-conditioned hall speaking to a bunch of people that have three meals a day. What have you done to show that you're worthy of criticizing? And this, Wallahi, I've been told this by so many young overzealous brothers, and they're always young, overzealous brothers. You never find a 50-year-old in, in their ranks. You never find a wise, mature person. You never find somebody who's dedicated his life to Islam. You always find a 19-year-old, overzealous person who's just discovered Islam yesterday and he thinks he's holier than everybody else. These young brothers come to me and I've heard this myself with my own two ears. Who are you to criticize them? At least they're doing something. I've heard this so many times. Okay, don't listen to me. Listen to Dr. Fadl. Dr. Fadl is their senior cleric. Dr. Fadl participated for more than a decade in Afghanistan. Dr. Fadl was a personal friend of bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. After 9-11, he writes this book called Tarshid al-Jihad. And so this is coming from a real jihadist, not some pacifist, not some, somebody you can accuse of being an American servant or lakai or whatever. This is coming from somebody who has lived the life. What did he write? He accuses the jihadists of many things. He says that these people don't understand the reality they're living in. That they don't take current circumstances into account. He said that the jihadists are so over incensed with doing jihad that they sometimes live evil lives. They're willing to acquire money by any haram method if it will finance guns. And we don't acquire money through haram. They said they're justifying the spilling of innocent blood. And he writes, there is no crime in the sharia after shirk that is more severe than the spilling of innocent blood. He said that people in this movement typically don't have any Islamic knowledge. Pause here, think about it. Where are their clerics? Where are their ulama? Where are their mashayikh? Bin Laden and Zawahiri? These are self-taught people. They learned sharia on their own.
They have not studied 10, 15, 20 years. They are not bona fide scholars. They are self-taught. Look at any other person who is famous in their ranks. Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, Abu Mus'ab al-Suri. Who are these people? Where have they studied? What are their credentials? They are self-taught. They pick and choose and paste and cut. And this is coming from Dr. Fadl's mouth who has lived the movement. He said that Juhala rise the highest in their ranks. The most fanatic become the leaders. Not because of knowledge, because they have the sweetest speech. And he writes, and I quote directly from the book, and I translated this myself, this paragraph. He writes, O believers, don't listen to those with fancy slogans who entice you to enter a conflict you are not qualified to participate in. And what is the point in killing one of theirs when they will come back and kill a thousand of yours? What is the point of destroying one building of theirs when they will bomb a hundred of yours? What have you accomplished? End quote. Think about what Dr. Fadl is saying. Think about what he's telling you. What is the purpose of pricking them with a pin when they will throw a bomb back at you? Forget Islam. Think common sense even. What is the purpose of getting involved in these militant movements when no good has ever come out of them in the history of Islam? Yes, there's something called legitimate jihad. Nobody's denying that. But what these groups are doing is not legitimate jihad. This is not what I am saying. This is what Dr. Fadl is saying. This is what people far superior and senior to me are saying. It never ceases to amaze me, brothers and sisters, how shallow the militants are. What do they think will be accomplished? What do they think is going to happen they never think two steps ahead it's always one step kill 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 bomb 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 well then what what's going to happen after that what did Juhayman think was going to happen when he held the Kaaba hostage how did he expect his band of people to be freed what did Gama'al al-Islamiyah think when they assassinated Sadat who would take over one of their own no somebody much worse than Sadat came what did they think when they massacred a bunch of tourists what did this man in America think when he's going to, uh, the two brothers, when they, when they uh, blew up the, the people in Boston, the Boston Marathon? Do you think people will love Allah and His Messenger? Will embrace Islam? Will support your movements and causes? Wallahi, your movements and causes have been harmed more by your innocent blood and the shedding of it than anything the foreign policy has ever done. The religion of Islam has suffered more in the eyes of the people by your own fanaticism than by anything else anybody else has done. Think about the long-term effects. You have made life more difficult for Muslims in your lands and the foreign policy that you are championing. Now people are sympathetic against it. They want more harshness. Why? Because of your fanaticism. What have you accomplished? Neither deen nor dunya. Religion does not teach this. Common sense does not teach this. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, there's a lot to be angry about in today's world. There's a lot that deserves our condemnation. I am an American and I swear by Allah, I swear by Allah, my country's foreign policy is what makes Muslims get angry and fight back. I'll admit this, I'm not running away. Yes, it is the foreign policy of my land, the unjust, oppressive foreign policy that makes people angry. I admit this, but what should that anger do? Cause you to kill? Then you're just like them. Cause you to kill? They will kill you back. That anger should motivate you to be a better Muslim, to fight in a legitimate manner. Our Prophet said, fight the pagans, fight the kuffar with your tongue, with your pens, and with your hands. There's times and places for different types of jihad. Right now, the jihad of the internet, the jihad of the tongue, the jihad of the pen is more effective in your lands 
Again, I'm speaking to you. Don't tell me the brothers in Syria, they have a different verdict. You right here in Norway, what can you do? Spread the message of Islam. Tell people about the Palestinian crisis. Tell them what's happening. Educate the people. This is your jihad, and it is a legitimate and valid jihad. Be angry, brothers and sisters. Be angry at every single drone that falls on innocent people in Afghanistan. Be angry at every innocent prisoner that is thrown into American jails. Be angry at our sister Afia Siddiqui and she is being jailed in America in such a manner. Be angry at Guantanamo. Be angry at Abu Ghuraib. The list goes on and on and on. But don't let your anger drive you crazy. Islam is not about emotional knee-jerk reactions. Islam is about thinking and channeling, channeling that anger in something productive, proactive for your community in the short term and in the long term. Brothers and sisters, channeling that anger into acts of militancy or into foolish and useless rhetoric will only bring undue attention to yourself and the Muslim community. Not only is it un-Islamic, it is counterproductive. Brothers and sisters, our Prophet described the Khadijites of later times as being Sufaha'ul Ahlami, Hudatha'ul Asnan. They're being overzealous bunch of kids. That's exactly what it translates into modern English. They're an overzealous bunch of kids. They speak a lot of good, but they do very bad. Think about these movements. Think about these online forums and chat rooms. Who's on it? A bunch of overzealous kids. You don't find adults. You don't find senior people. You don't find anybody above 30 years of age. Does a teenager really think that you have more iman and wisdom than a 60-year-old who's lived his whole life practicing Islam and preaching and teaching to the masses? Do you really think at the age of 19, you will carry the wave of jihad forward and your people triple your age don't know what they're doing? Think about this and don't be the overzealous foolish kid. If you're not going to allow religious sentiments to temper uh, your, your, your anger and, your, and channel your anger, then at least let it be tempered by the lessons from history. If you're not going to listen to the book of Allah, and I find it amazing, somebody actually has to quote you the Quran to tell you killing innocent civilians is haram. If you're not going to listen to the book of Allah, then at least look at recent history. The final point, especially because I'm speaking here in Norway. Brothers and sisters, think about it. What happened in your country last year? This, this madman, Breivik, right? Breivik? Breivik. Imagine, did not every one of you thank Allah that this madman wasn't a Muslim? Every one of you. Didn't your first thought be, I was in America and I heard the news and I said, Ya Allah, please not a Muslim. Ya Allah, please not a Muslim. Right? How can anybody be so foolish as to think that what Breivik is doing, if a Muslim had done it, it would be legitimate? My dear brothers and sisters, do you really need somebody to tell you that Allah says it's haram to kill innocent life? Wallahi, what is your fanaticism and religion? How will that affect? Suppose Breivik had been a Muslim. Breivik, alhamdulillah, we thank Allah he's not a Muslim. But guess what? We have people like that in our religion. We have fanatics like that. The Boston bombers, they did the same thing. The Faisal Shahzad guy in New York Times, the same thing. The underwear bomber, uh, Abdul Muttalib, the same thing. They have the same mentality. They think by killing, 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 some good will come. What good will come? Imagine, imagine if this guy Breivik had been a Muslim. Where, I swear, we would not be having, you would not invite anybody. You can't have a conference anymore. Khalas, Islam is now underground in Norway. And would you blame them? Honestly, would you blame them? What would you do in their shoes if that guy had been a Muslim? 
Think about it. And I reiterate, what I'm talking about in this whole lecture is not directed to Afghan, to Syria, to the people in there. It's directed to me and you over here killing innocent people. So please don't misunderstand me. Yes, there's a legitimate jihad. Yes, people need to defend their right to live. But defending their right to live does not mean killing innocent people, which is what these jihadist movements have done. Jihad is a legitimate term. It's a noble term. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. But those groups that misuse and abuse the term jihad, we should be brave enough to stand up for the sake of Allah and criticize them because they're harming the real jihad much more than any non-Muslim can ever harm it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be people of the true jihad and not the false jihad. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to do jihad as He is pleased with and not a jihad that is uh, that is false and that will lead us astray. May Allah Azza wa return izzah and glory to this religion. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring peace to this earth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cause us to live as Muslims, to die as shaheed and to be resurrected amongst the Nabiin and Siddiqin and Shuhada'u Salihin. Wa hasunu alayka rafiqa. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The first question we have is, should we go to Syria to join the jihad? Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa ala ba'd. There is no doubt that what is taking place in Syria is the height of oppression. We have not seen in this last century a greater disaster. The Syrian disaster has even eclipsed the Rwandan disaster of two decades ago. There is not any humanitarian crisis of the last century that is worse and more painful for us to watch than the current crisis in Syria. And I have no doubt that this modern Taghiya, Fir'aun, this, 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 this evil person in charge, this Bashar al-Assad, there is no doubt in my mind that he is the modern Fir'aun of our times. And that the people that are being oppressed under him, Allah Azza wa will reward them. And insha'Allah, ala inna nasrullahi qareeb. And whoever is able to legitimately uh, fight against this oppression, alhamdulillah, that is great. Theoretically, jihad against Bashar al-Assad is the greatest jihad. Realistically, you in Norway, sitting on a plane and going to Syria, what are you doing? You see, theory and reality are sometimes two different things. And theoretically, I will be the first to say that it is a duty for all Muslims to help against any oppression. When our sisters are being raped, when our children are being slaughtered, when our men are being cut up alive because they don't prostrate to Bashar al-Assad, then we should stand up and defend those people. But realistically, can you here in Norway do something of this? The reality is, and this is not me speaking, this is the Syrian National Congress. This is people that are Syrian. These are people who know their country better than me and you. They have issued multiple statements saying that, oh Muslims in other lands, do not come to Syria. Why? Because the situation is complete chaos. You cannot guarantee that you will end up fighting the right enemy. The reality on the ground is that much of the warfare is taking place between different groups all of which claim allegiance to Islam in opposition to Bashar al-Assad. The reality is one Sunni group is fighting another Sunni group, Sunnis are fighting other sects, and sometimes the both of them are fighting each other and Bashar is their common enemy. 
This is the reality that you cannot deny. And if you deny it, I swear by Allah, you are naive to the streets of Syria. Look and read. Theoretically, yes, it is good to fight against Bashar al-Assad. Realistically, you cannot guarantee. Nobody can guarantee. I know people that have gone. I have many Syrian friends. They are all on the same wavelength. That your going there is only going to cause greater confusion. You become a pawn in a larger game that you do not control. You are a very precious pawn. You're not just a pawn. You're a knight or a bishop. Why? Because you're from Norway or America or England. Other groups are salivating looking at you because you are something they can manipulate. And they are being manipulated. The problem once again is not the theoretical jihad. It is the realistic scenario on the streets of Syria. Everybody that I know, the people that I look up to and trust, genuine people concerned about Syria, my fellow Syrian brothers and sisters in Memphis and all over the world, all of them, people of intelligence and iman and taqwa who hate Bashar al-Assad, whose own cousins and brothers are being raped and killed. I have friends in Memphis, their cousins were killed by Bashar al-Assad. They are not saying, go and fight in Syria. Why? Because they know the situation better. And they understand you taking a plane ticket and landing somewhere in Jordan and smuggling yourself over the border. You are acting like a fool. You're entering a war zone. And you're a little kid that has never played with real war. You will make the situation worse. Other groups will pounce on you. Each one will want to take you and you will end up fighting a war that is illegitimate because it's in between the opposition forces. The problem is the opposition forces are not united against Bashar al-Assad's forces. They themselves are bombing each other. They themselves are killing each other. Half of the time that's what's happening. And you walking into this war zone, naive and innocent with the best of intentions, you might end up losing your life or worse than losing your life, you will kill innocent blood because you losing your life, okay, that's sad. But at least on the day of judgment, you haven't killed anybody. How about you picking up a gun and killing somebody innocent? What will you answer Allah on the day of judgment? And the fact of the matter is ISIS and many of these groups in Syria, they have innocent blood on their hands and they will have to answer to Allah for that innocent blood. So why should you get involved? I wish, wallahi, I wish that there was a unified fight that we could go and support in all different ways. But that is not the reality. And you, being who you are, being born and raised in this land, not being a part of that. Now, if you were in Syria, then I would tell you, go to the scholars of Syria. I am not speaking to the brothers in Syria. That fatwa should go, come from the scholars of Syria. I'm speaking to you in Norway. I'm speaking to us in the West. I'm a Western scholar, a Western academic. I'm living and, and talking to to my Western Muslims. For us, my dear brothers and sisters, the jihad is the jihad of the tongue. It's a jihad of the pen. It's a jihad of Facebook and jihad of the, of the, of, 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 of the keyboard. You preach message. You teach Islam. You tell others about the reality. And you want to do more than this, you donate, your, your, you donate your, your, to the welfare of the um, refugees. You go and help the people with food, with blanket. You go and get humanitarian aid. This is going to be clean. You really want to help out, go join a humanitarian organization and go and feed the poor, the orphans that are coming out of Syria. Clothe them. Go there and feed the hungry. Don't fight people whom you don't know who they're going to be. My honest advice, and this is not coming just from me, any person of knowledge, ask the other people of knowledge. Wallahi, my dear young brothers, and it's always young brothers and a few young sisters. It's always young brothers. I uh, plead and I beg you, 
Your 19-year-old mind is not more mature than that of a 50, 60-year-old. You don't know Islam or reality better than your father and grandfather. You might have more emotions, but you don't have more knowledge. You don't have more understanding. Don't think that you know better than everybody in the world. You have good emotions. Wallahi, I know that. You want to help. You see the images of the rape, the slaughter. You see that little child torn up to pieces. You see that little girl frozen to death. Wallahi, I cried when I saw that image. I have a daughter that age. Wallahi, I cried. But what can we do other than dua, other than dhikr, other than better our lives and give our money to help them whatever way we can, give them food and shelter. And what else can we do? Me going there, you going there is not going to help that little girl. And anybody who has been there or knows the situation will tell you this. Our hearts bleed for our brothers and sisters. Allah is testing them in very difficult ways. But again, don't act emotionally and rashly. The situation in Syria is very complicated, very convoluted. You have at least, at least seven or eight groups fighting Bashar al-Assad and fighting themselves. They are fighting against an enemy and occasionally fighting against themselves. And we have seen on YouTube, on video clips, some of the injustices that these groups do against the civilians. In their fanaticism, if a civilian doesn't support them, oh, you must be working for Bashar al-Assad and kill him right then and there or do something of this nature. Meaning what? When you have a gun and you have fanatic ideas, everybody becomes an enemy. You start thinking like this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, the situation there is very complicated. I wish it were simple. I wish it were black and white, good and evil. The Muslims of Syria versus the Alawi regime, uh, uh, the Taghut, the, uh, the Fir'aun regime. I wish there were two camps. They are not. There are at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen camps. And you walking in, you are literally becoming a pawn in a game far more powerful than you, far more evil than you, far more sinister than you can ever imagine. Once again, use that emotion and channel it to something productive. Raise awareness of Syria. Start a humanitarian effort here. Raise some funds. Get some blankets. Get some jackets. It's freezing cold there. Any surplus jackets you have become a, ma a means and a channel for helping people out. Do something that clearly will not harm anybody. And that's humanitarian effort. Sending bread, sending or, or doing something of this nature. But militarily, you going there? No, 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 because the situation does not dictate for it. Not that the fight itself is evil, but the fight is too complicated. And therefore, theory and reality are two separate things, and Allah Azza knows best. Jazakallah We have, mashallah, a very good news. There is a sister who wants to accept Islam, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Do we have some sound in the microphone, inshallah? Uh, so, can you speak in the microphone? Can you say something? What's your name? Salaamu Alaikum. Alaikum. What is your name? Kubela. Kubela. So, uh, Kubela, you understand English? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you understand? Have you been uh, taught the basics of Islam? That Islam means that you must believe in one true God and that the Prophet Muhammad is the final Prophet and Messenger. Have you been taught this? Yes. You understand that when you convert to Islam, there is a lifestyle that you should try to live by, which includes praying five times a day and fasting the month of Ramadan and paying zakat and living in accordance with the laws of Islam. Have you been, you understand that this is an obligation, that you have a lifestyle to try to live by. Have you been told this? 
Yes. And you also are embracing Islam freely of your own charge. Nobody is pressuring or forcing you. This is something you want to do genuinely from your own heart. Yes. Alhamdulillah, that's great. So the way that somebody embraces Islam is very easy. And that is that you repeat the testimony of faith after me. So I will recite the testimony of faith in Arabic and you will repeat word by word and then I will recite it in English and you will repeat the English and that will conclude your uh, acceptance of Islam. Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah I testify that there is no deity worthy of worship except for Allah and I testify that Muhammad is his final prophet and messenger is his final alhamdulillah Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar sister I welcome you to the fraternity and the sorority of the Muslim Ummah today is the most blessed and fortunate day of your life every one of us is jealous of you do you want to know why because today your sins have been wiped away completely you are the holiest and most sinless person amongst us and every one of us is jealous of you today you are coming with a clean slate today you are being born all again and inshallah ta'ala this is the beginning of the rest of your beautiful life may allah bless you sisters please take charge of her affairs sisters please exchange phone numbers with her do not just let her uh, uh, unhelped and unaided she needs to be taught she needs company and support she will face persecution and harassment from even if it's verbal from her society from her family from her other culture you have to embrace her as your own sister my dear sister in Islam you now have alhamdulillah a billion brothers and sisters everyone in this auditorium is now your brother and sister and we will do anything we can to help you out mabruk 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 alhamdulillah alhamdulillah the next question is about the opinion of Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin. You also mentioned that you have studied with the Sheikh, so you should know. Uh, so the question is, uh, some people justify their, their terrorism uh, or their tactics with uh, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin's fatwa. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, I'm not going to reference the fatwa because it's you know, very controversial in here. Please listen to me carefully. A scholar, every scholar, teaches and gives verdicts and the teaching is always generic and theoretical and the verdicts are what are practical if you go through medical school you go through engineering you go through any school you will study large textbooks and you will go over many different cases but when you get to the actual operating theater when you get to the actual mechanical plant or chemical engineering plant or whatever, that will not necessarily be exactly what you studied in class. So theory is sometimes different than reality. Now, on YouTube, there's a very famous clip where somebody took a five minute or three minute clip from Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen when he's teaching theory. And this is a book of fiqh that he teaches called Zad al-Mustaqni'. And he teaches this book, he taught it seven or eight times in his life. And one of the chapters in this book is the chapter of Jihad. And in this, in a theoretical scenario, he's giving what if this, then maybe we can do this. What if that, we can do that. He's talking theory. And he mentions things in this theory. To take his theory, 
cut and paste it and apply it to Bosnia, apply it to Syria, apply it to Norway. This is the essence of jahl, of ignorance. It's like you open up a book of neurosurgery and then you practice neurosurgery on the patient in front of you. It doesn't work like that. This is Shaykh ibn Uthaymin's class that he's teaching to advanced students. This is a class you want to attend it. You attend it cover to cover, beginning to end. That's fine. But for you to take three minutes talking theory and then apply it to reality, to a particular situation, nobody with a shred of intelligence does this. Also, you want to know something? Thing. The Shaykh, Allah Yarhamu, he is my Shaykh. I love him. Wallahi, more than any other Shaykh in the world, I have a relation. My, my love for him is more than any other Shaykh. He had an impact on me that no other Shaykh did. Do you know that the Shaykh, when it came to the Bosnian War, he was alive and healthy. 9 11 happened, he's already passed away, so he doesn't have any fatwa. In the Bosnian War, he was alive and healthy. And many of the people in the Bosnian War would call him up and ask him, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that much of what he told them is not allowed and allowed in the Bosnian war varied from the theory he's teaching in his generic classes. Why? Because theory is one thing, practicality and reality is another. What he might teach theoretically, well, sometimes you can do X. Okay, sometimes you can. Now, are you allowed to do X in Bosnia? Somebody calls him a sheikh, can we do this and that? No, 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 not there because this is going to cause this and that. And so he gives a specific fatwa, no. Now, to take his theory and then apply it in Norway or America, I swear by Allah, the sheikh would never approve. And I will stand in front of Allah and answer this. He would never approve of the terrorism acts that occurred on Western soil. Never. That was not the methodology of our sheikh. And you don't believe me? I'm not one of his major students. I don't, I don't claim to be one of his major students. Allah blessed me to study with him one summer. Call it what you will. I had his company for one summer. Go to his major students. Go to his son-in-law, who is student, study with him for 30 years. Go to those who study with him 40 years. Go to all of his heirs, the actual people who studied with the sheikh, and go ask all of them right now, sheikh, can we go and and throw a bomb off in Norway? Can we kill people in the subway of New York? Go ask them and see what they say. What stupidity is this that you, without any knowledge of Arabic, log on to YouTube, take a three-minute clip, and then think you are faqih, Shaykh al-Islam, muftil Google. This is what you become. Brothers and sisters, don't kill innocent people based on Shaykh Wikipedia and Imam Google. What type of knowledge is this? What type of knowledge is this? Go study ilm from the real ulama. And if you really want to, go to his students and ask them directly. He has a son-in-law that studied with him for 40 years and is now teaching in his chair. Literally, he's sitting in the chair of the sheikh in the masjid. The sheikh loved him so much, he married his daughter to him. If you trust anybody, go trust him. Ask him, Sheikh, this is what we found on YouTube from your own father-in-law. Can we apply it to America or Norway? And I know exactly what he's going to say because I know this student or this son-in-law very well. I know the Sheikh as well. He would never approve of this lunacy, of this militancy, of this blood, blood, blood. This is not the way of our religion. Theory is different than reality. And you cannot quote theory and then apply it to reality without having knowledge. None of the famous scholars, the reputable scholars, none of them allowed such terroristic attacks on innocent people, on innocent soil. None of our scholars did this because wallahi, this this is not a part of our religion of Islam. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. The next question is about Anwar al-Awlaki. Should we listen to his talks about uh, the seerah and other things, even though he has the opinion that you can use mass destruction weapons and kill as, much, as many people as possible in the West? 
It's a bit awkward talking about specific people because people get very emotional. Anwar al-Awlaki was somebody who Allah Azza wa blessed with a good tongue and he had some, some basic knowledge of Islam. And in America, that basic knowledge is very useful. And before 9-11, he did a lot of good work. Before 9-11, he did a lot of good work. And he did a lot of good lectures about the seerah, about the lives of the Prophet. And Allah Azza wa blessed him with a personality that really the people and the youth loved. Uh, and I was, of course, I mean, active in da'wah when he was active. I, I knew him, I met him. Uh, we had some type of cordial relationship. Then, after 9 11, uh, he released a number of statements which condemned 9 11 and condemned America. And he followed a path that you still see me upon, which is you criticize America for its foreign policy and you criticize the militants for the militancy. This is my methodology, I'm still upon it. You criticize America for their foreign policy and you say America has killed more people through its foreign policy than all the jihadists combined. I'm an American, I'm saying this. Listen to me carefully. American foreign policy has killed far more people than the jihadists have killed. That doesn't make the jihadist methodology right. This is what Anwar al-Awlaki himself said. You will find it on YouTube. Same types of stuff. That methodology, I'm still upon it. Then what happened? Slowly but surely, he began veering away from this methodology. And he began to feel that it is legitimate to attack all American citizens. Any American citizen becomes a legitimate target. Eventually, he left America and he moved to Yemen and he became more uh, incendiary and more militant and this is when I disagreed with him I began to indirectly refute him not directly I never wanted to mention him by name I was hoping and making dua and praying that he would come back to a more moderate path especially because he had lived in America for I think 15 years or something 10 years and he had seen that look the average American is totally ignorant of foreign policy to this day this is the biggest problem of jihadists that they think every American is mashallah tabarakallah complete expert in everything yeah the average American doesn't even know where Norway is with all respect to Norway if you showed them on a map where's Norway they would have no idea completely this is the system of America they don't know you're just gonna go kill them because of American foreign policy no this is not Islam it's not logical it's not rational but this is what he began saying and he began preaching something that I did not agree with I began refuting him indirectly and when uh, America assassinated him in a cruel unjust assassination that goes against everything it stands for itself for those of you who are into political science and history and whatnot the right of habeas corpus is what makes the West the West the right of habeas corpus, you're not going to kill somebody, try somebody, jail somebody without a trial, without a jury, without evidence being presented. This is the cornerstone of Western civilization. Well, when, whenever it suits them, they'll throw it out the window and they did it for Anwar al-Awlaki. When they assassinated Anwar al-Awlaki by an executional decree, by the president himself, he just willed it and he just said, go and kill him. When they did this, I was the one who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and I'm not trying to brag or boast brothers and sisters, but sometimes things need to be said. The only national cleric in America that came out and criticized, and in the New York Times, which is the most prestigious publication in all of America, the next day after Anwar al-Awlaki is assassinated, I wrote a New York Times op-ed, Google it, Yasir Qadhi, New York Times op-ed, Anwar al-Awlaki, you will find it. And I wrote an unjust, and a illegal and a counterproductive, unjust, illegal, counterproductive assassination. And I criticized Anwar al-Awlaki, but then I said, what do you think you guys have done? 
by assassinating him, you have done exactly what you accuse them of doing, which is killing indiscriminately, which is killing people that are, that are without judge and jury and trial. And the lines between you and the enemy are becoming blurred now. You're doing the same tactics that you criticize. And what have you done? You have made Anwar al-Awlaki into a, into a person who will be admired, his thought will be admired. Look, my dear brothers and sisters, we do not pronounce verdicts on people. What is his fate in the Akhirah? That's not my business to judge. Allah will judge. I will judge the legacy he left behind. And that legacy has much good and it also has much harm. That legacy has much good and it also has potential danger. I do not believe in his methodology of jihad. And I think that he misunderstood. He was, now Allah knows best, some people have told me he was tortured in Yemen and that torture caused him to react in a manner. Whatever, Allah will answer, he will answer to Allah on the day of judgment. I'm not talking about his akhirah. Whether he died a shaheed or not, we hope every good Muslim dies the death of a shaheed. That's not my business to judge. My business is to judge his legacy. And his legacy has a lot of good and also a lot of harm and danger. So, should you listen to him? If you want to take the good only and you're qualified to take the good, fine. But be careful that his methodology of jihad, in my humble opinion, it goes exactly in sync with my entire lecture. It sounds so good, but what good will it do you? What good will it do you? And here's another point, brothers and sisters. Our religion doesn't tell us to die foolish deaths. Our religion does not tell us to charge into battle, a legitimate battle, and throw off your armor and say, come and kill me, I want to die shaheed. Do you think that's how the Sahaba fought? Think about it. Do you think that's how the Sahaba fought? Yes, we want to die a shaheed, a legitimate martyr, but that's after we fought a real war, a legitimate war. You cannot fight a real war doing what he did, speaking as he spoke. You are asking for trouble that will not bring about any positive to the ummah. And subhanAllah, the brother Anwar did so much good when he was preaching and teaching. How many youth came back to Islam? Wallahi, think about it now. Be calm, be fair. His message that he died with, how has it tainted all of that good? Before anybody else was giving da'wah to that level, I was in Medina, others were in Medina. In the late 90s, the most effective preacher in all of America to bring the masses back to Islam was, alhamdulillah, somebody like Anwar, doing so great work. What did his late legacy do to his earlier legacy? Think about it. Imagine if he had stayed on that same path. Imagine if he kept on telling the youth, come back to the masjid, come back to Allah, pray, leave your sins, don't do this, don't do that. How much more benefit could he have benefited the ummah? Now as it is, ask yourselves, what has he done of benefit in legacy? As for his akhirah, I say again, that's between him and Allah, that's not my business to judge. But in this dunya, I have to say that I disagree with that methodology. I think it is harmful for him, and it proved to be harmful for him, and it is harmful to the ummah. It is counterproductive to the ummah. Who will benefit? You know, Anwar wasn't the only one who died. There were other Americans who were killed in drone attacks. One of them was with him. And that brother that died with him, uh, Samir Khan is his name. So I, uh, I also had online interaction with him and a lot of back and forth and he would refute me as being, oh, you're a pacifist, you're a sellout, you're this, you're that. And wallahi, it hurt me back then. Wallahi, it hurt me that this brother has so much zeal, but he's misusing it. Now, where is this brother? What has he done? What good has he done for the ummah? What he could have remained. I, would, I visited his community last year and his family is grieving, his mother is sad, his brothers are this and that. My point is what good has been accomplished? 
a young, vibrant, dynamic man has been extinguished. Nothing left of him. What, what could he have done for the ummah? Now there's nothing left. Our ummah, our religion, our Lord, our Prophet وسلم, is not telling you to die the death of a fool. Live your life productively. You know, Sheikh bin Baz had a beautiful saying. He said it's easy to die the death of a, 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 a shaheed. It's difficult to live the life of a shaheed. Meaning what? You walk into a battle, it's easy to die. You're living and you live like the shaheed. You live like a Muslim. That is the real battle. Brothers and sisters, what good did they do? What, with all respect to them, what good did they do? So don't follow that path and let Allah be their judge and realize that the ummah needs every one of you to be proactive and productive uh, in, in doing what you are doing right now, which is being good Muslims, giving back to your communities, spreading the teachings of Islam. This is what the ummah needs of you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh. The next question is, we have a group in Norway who follows this uh, uh, mentality, this ideology, where, and they are spreading it. They were active in uh, recruiting young people to join their ideology, and many of them are present here today, maybe. And many of the young people have friends who are in this, in this community, and they are... They are what? And they're, yes, they're, and they're affected by their ideology. What advice do you give to the young brothers and sisters in this room? Should they be with these kind of people or should they disassociate themselves from these kinds of people? Did you not listen to my entire lecture? What was I saying for the last hour and a half? All of those brothers who are flirting with this ideology, please think with your heads and not with your emotions. Think rationally. Listen to what I have to say and challenge me. Don't even accept me. Challenge me. Every fact that I quoted, go do your own research. Find out the reality of Juhayman. Find out Al-Jihad, Jama'at Al-Takfir. Find out what Shukri Mustafa did. Find out what all of these groups did. Find out they assassinated one of the greatest scholars of Egypt, Dr. Al-Zahabi in 1977. They abducted him and killed him in front of his daughter. They shot him to death. The greatest, one of the greatest scholars of Egypt because he said this is a fanatic group. They showed their fanaticism by shooting him in front of his own children. The great, a great scholar of Islam wrote a whole bunch of books. Find out what these groups have done. Don't believe me, fine, but then do the research. Don't be led and misled astray by people exactly as the Prophet ﷺ described, a bunch of overzealous kids. Literally in English, this translates a bunch of overzealous kids. They sound good, but they're causing destruction in the ummah. If you don't think these ahadith apply to these jihadist groups, then go find the groups they apply to. Tell me, who else is there that is speaking in this manner, preaching in this manner, and yet causing so much destruction. So, don't trust me, go find somebody else and do the research yourself. Read history, read these books, but whatever you do, don't blindly follow. Don't blindly follow somebody who sounds good, fiery rhetoric, but in reality, he's telling you to kill yourself and to kill somebody else. That's not the religion of Islam. All I can say is, Wallahi, what can you do? Listen to my lecture and challenge it. And go find other people that will tell you these things. Read the books and keep on spreading these types of ideologies. The problem is, my dear brothers and sisters, the real problem is the world is not black and white. It's not composed of righteous angels and evil demons. There are people that have a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. And these jihadists, they have a little bit of good. Meaning they want to fight evil, but they also have sometimes a lot of bad. 
This is the problem. That you have to find out what is the bad as well. The world is not black and white. Everybody has some good and some bad in him. But these movements have more bad than good. And the good is eclipsing their bad. You need to find out what is the reality. In the end of the day, stick with your senior scholars in this land. Stick with the people who have been here, a part of your community. Go to your ulama, your mashayikh. Go to the people that have been activists here. Not some 17-year-old or 20-year-old kid in his basement. Not somebody who's achieved internet fame. Not somebody who's a keyboard jihadist that online he becomes Mr. Mujahid. And then in the day he's watching porn and drinking and going with his girls. Don't, do, don't be like that. No, be real, yaqi, be real. This is the reality of what is happening. It's easy to be a keyboard jihadist. You become Mr. Anonymous Mujahid. You become the, the lion of Islam. This is now your kunya online, right? The lion of Islam. And the lion of Islam has a poster of whatever is the rock group in Norway, I don't know, on his bedroom wall. What type of lion of Islam is this? And wallahi, every one of you who's involved with these movements, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What type of lion is there that still does these types of sins? And then online, it's like Mr. J Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality. Online, he'll become super pious, super mujahid. And in his real life, he's watching the latest, um, what is it, uh, Lord of the Rings or Batman, the Dark Knight or whatever. He's going to be watching this. This is your jihad. This is your jihad that the latest movie comes out, the, the Game of Thrones or whatever, you're watching the latest series of that, right? This is your jihad? Let's be real, brothers. Let's be real. No, this is not jihad. This is fooling you. Shaitan is fooling you. You want to do jihad? Do it against yourself and your own soul first rather than think uh, online and abroad. And Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. Next question is, what can you do if your husband is like these jihadist movements but he doesn't treat you good at all? Exactly my point. What type of jihad is this that you can't even treat your wife and child in a good manner? Wallahi, whose sunnah are you following? Think about it. And I know this hurts and I know the jihadists online are going to smear me again. But wallahi, I have to say this. Look at your own manners, O mujahideen of online world. Look at your own families. Look at your own habits in private when nobody's watching other than Allah. You know and Allah knows. Look at your own habits. What type of jihad? Here's a sister spilling the beans, telling it like it is. Because there is no such thing as Mr. Online Jihad who is really legitimately doing jihad the way it's supposed to be done. No, it's a facade. It's a bravado. It's a show they're putting on. Wallahi, it is overcompensation for their own lives that they live. Their lives are full of sin. Their lives are full of misery. So what happens? They become Mr. Jihad online to give themselves a feeling of being better than everybody else. Wallahi, you cannot do jihad if you're mistreating your wife and your children. Why? Because our Prophet Muhammad wasallam said, the best amongst you are those who are the best to their wives and I am the best to my wife. He is saying this, the best amongst you are those who are the best to their wives. How can this Mr. Jihad exist? And his own wife is complaining in public that he mistreats me, he abuses me, doesn't take care of the kids. What type of jihad is this? This shows us the reality of this movement, which is what Dr. Fadl himself pointed out. That they concentrate on jihad, 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 and they don't think about their families, their children. They don't think about society, usefulness. How can you talk about jihad in Syria when your neighbor is hungry? When your neighbor on the other side is thirsty? When, wallahi, your neighbor doesn't even know you're a Muslim? What type of jihad is this? Have you told him the reality of Islam? Have you shown him the beauty of Islam? You're worried about Syria and Palestine and Afghanistan and the person in front of you does not even know La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and you're with him for 10, 20, 30 years? Think about it. 
This is not jihad. This is foolishness. And this sister has exposed it better than I could do. Jihad is a noble concept, brothers and sisters. These people, the jihadist movements, are not showing the real jihad. That's my point in the lectures that I'm giving. And Allah knows best. We can take one last question. Okay. The question is about these uh, jihadis, they always talk about the kufr of the Muslim rulers and the Muslim rulers are kuffar because they don't rule by the rule of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is this correct? Are all Muslim rulers kuffar? So the question is about Muslim rulers and leadership and this is a very deep and convoluted topic and much can be said. I will tell you what our own Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin used to say when somebody would come and ask him these things. Somebody would come and ask him these things. Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin would say, look, this is an issue that's very deep. It's very theological. How will it benefit you? How will it benefit you? An average person, how will you benefit knowing that the al this and the al that are Muslim or kafir? How will it change your life? And again, I go, get back to my last example. When your neighbor is hungry, when your neighbor is, is not knowing Islam, when you have problems in your own society, what difference does it make you if the rulers of Egypt, the rulers of this, the rulers of that are Muslim or non-Muslim? It is an important issue for some people. It is an important issue for those who can affect change at certain levels. For them and for students of knowledge and for experts in theology, let them discuss it. For the average person, Shaykh Uthaymeen would say this, my own teacher would say this, this knowledge is more dangerous to be taught to the masses than useful. Some knowledge is not useful because you misuse it, you, mis you abuse it. This is a theoretical issue and it has practical application for some people. Those people that it has practical application for, let them research it, let them go do it, let them find out. For us at our level, and I am including myself in that level, let us just be very simple and say we are obliged to follow the law of Islam in our personal lives to the greatest extent possible. As much as we can, our food, our clothing, our inheritance, it must be done in accordance with the Sharia. Let's strive to do this. And there's a famous incident that's narrated by Hassan al-Basri. And it's a beautiful story that Hassan al-Basri lived at the time of uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was a very tyrannical ruler, a very evil ruler. He killed the Sahaba, he did a lot of bad things, and everybody really despised him. And a group of young men came to Hassan al-Basri uh, preaching, you know, we have to fight. This ruler is not a Muslim, he's this, he's that, he's, you know, we need to go and fight him and do qital and whatnot. And Hassan al-Basri kept on diverting them. Have you studied the Quran? Have you done this? Have you done that? And they kept on saying, how can you ignore this reality? And they went on and they fought the army of Hajjaj and they all died. One of the things that Hassan told them, and listen to this carefully, he said, Wallahi, one backbiting that you have done in this world will cause you on the day of judgment more distress than all the blood Hajjaj has ever shed. Think about that. One backbiting, one ghibah that you have done will cause you more distress on Yawm Al-Qiyamah than all the blood Hajjaj has shed. So why don't you concentrate on your own ghibah and backbiting than on the blood of Hajjaj? But they ignored him. Again, Sufa'ul Ahlami, Hudatha'ul Asnan, overzealous bunch of kids. They went and they killed and they, they killed themselves. They, they basically died. And Hassan al-Basri, when the news reached him, he said, he expressed regret and remorse. And he said, what good did their zealousness do them? Where did they end up? Who benefited? They killed themselves. Their lives are ended. Their families are crying. They don't have children anymore. Or their children are orphans. Who benefited from all of this? Wallahi, this is the same thing here. 
ask that which is useful and beneficial, the issue of Muslim rulers really is of no concern to me and you. Let it be discussed amongst those who it is a concern to. For us and our lives, let us concentrate on applying the laws of Allah the most that we can in our personal lives and leave the business of the rulers to those who are ruling and to those around them that have to discuss these issues with their scholars. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Wa jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.